0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Gabor Mate. He is the author of four blockbuster books. One is called Scattered Minds, known in the United States as Scattered, a new look at the origins and healing of attention disorder. Another book you may have heard of already called Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. And the book we're going to talk about today is When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress, Exploring the Stress-Disease Connection, and this is the latest book in the realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. He is a doctor who is exploring the depths of humankind in the mind-body connection, and he's probably one of the more interesting speakers in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Gabor Mate, to its rainmaking time. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. The first thing I wanted to tell you was my sincere thank you for writing this book that we're going to discuss today, When the Body Says No, Exploring the Stress-Disease Connection. Because even though many of us today who consider ourselves on the cutting edge are really paying attention to the mind-body relationship, the profound amount of evidence in this book that you cite and the way you explain the disease and the body connection as it relates to the emotions is profound. And I'd like to just read a small portion of your book. On page 28, Sile actually wrote this. He said, stress is not simply nervous tension. Stress reactions do occur in lower animals and even in plants that have no nervous systems. Indeed, stress can be produced under deep anesthesia in patients who are unconscious and even in cell cultures grown outside the body. There is a way to feel tension without activating the psychological mechanisms of stress. So apparently, stress can be triggered by emotional trauma or just the threat of such trauma, even if purely imaginary. Tell us more what we need to know about emotionality and how it's a causal factor in stress. Well,
1: um, stress is a physiological reaction in the body, so that's the first thing to understand. So, usually, when people think of stress, they think of some um, something that bothers them, and you know, there's some truth to that. But from the scientific point of view, that's not what we mean by stress. So from the scientific perspective, stress is a physiological reaction in your body that is triggered by usually fear. And then it moves into a set of responses that would help you deal with the fear. So, uh, adrenaline and cortisol are the two stress hormones. They elevate the blood pressure, make your muscles stronger, increase your heartbeat, uh, elevate your sugar level. In other words, helping your body prepare to escape or to fight. So So, the stress response is that physiological flight or fight mechanism that occurs. Now, the... The question is what triggers that response? Well, any, any sense of threat of losing something that you consider important. So what are people stressed by? Well, a threat to their lives, a threat to their children, a threat to their emotional relationships, a threat to the sense of being loved, a threat to their jobs. Any one of these things can trigger the stress response. We need the stress response in order to, do, to deal with acute threats, but in the long-term stress, actually damages the body. So in the short term, it's helpful, but chronic stress is that damaging. So the same chemicals, cortisol and adrenaline, for example, in the short term, help you escape or to fight back. In the long term, damage your heart, give you high blood pressure, uh, can cause strokes, uh, ulcers in the intestines, depression, suppress your immune system, thin your bones, and cause a whole other set of deleterious effects. So we have to distinguish between chronic stress and acute stress. Acute stress is the response, specific response to the threat. Chronic stress is what happens when people unwittingly take on too much, or there's too much stress in their lives, and they have no way of dealing with it in a powerful, self-assertive way. That chronic stress underlines much of what we call illness in our society, much of what is illness in our society. And that chronic stress is not seen by people very clearly, because they're so used to it, they think it's normal. So a lot of people are much more stressed than they think they are, simply because they don't recognize it as stress anymore.
0: Why do you think it is that we're able to adapt to it, almost like the frog adapts to boiling water? And by the time it's fully adapted, it's cooked. Why is it that we are not conscious of this as it's happening?
1: That goes back to childhood. You see, in childhood, uh, we have two great needs. The first and the overriding need is attachment to our parents, to the nurturing adults in our lives. Without that, we don't survive. so that need overrides everything else. The second need that all human beings have at any stage is is authenticity, to be authentically themselves. In other words, to feel what they feel, to be able to express what they feel, and to have that received and understood by the environment and responded to. So far, so good. But what happens in a child's life when in order to maintain the attachment relationship, they have to suppress who they are because the parents can't handle it, because the parents are too needy, because the parents are too threatened by the child's anger, because the parents are so stressed and distracted that the child learns to suppress their own needs in order to fit in with the parenting relationship because that's the primary need. So in other words, the one need then for attachment trumps the other one for authenticity. And we lose touch with our bodies and our emotions. And therefore, we're no longer aware when we're stressed. And that becomes our personality. So it's not a question of a choice anybody makes. Really, it's the consequence of stresses in our nurturing environment, which we adapt to, but we adapt to it by suppressing ourselves.
0: I like the part in here where you say, physiologically, emotions are themselves electrical, electrical, chemical and hormonal discharges of the human nervous system emotions influence and are influenced by the functioning of our major organs the integrity of our immune defenses and the workings of the many circulating biological substances that help govern the body's physical states you talk about what happens when emotions are repressed also thought it was profound that none of your patients with serious diseases have learned to say no this is profound
1: well My whole thesis is that, well, first of all, the quote that you just read out, all that means to say is that mind and body can't be separated. And that the emotions are not separate from the body. So that whatever we experience emotionally, we also experience physiologically by definition. And uh, that's obvious because if you experienced a powerful emotion right now, you could actually notice your body changing in a moment. I mean, blood might rush to your face, you might blush blood might leave your internal organs. Your intestine might start cramping. Any number of physiological things would happen. Now, whether you're physically aware that things are happening, they're still happening. So whenever there's emotion, there's also emotional, there's a physiological reaction. And uh, now when people learn to suppress their emotions, because that's what their parenting environment demands, that doesn't mean they stop reacting physically. It just means that they lose uh, contact with that reaction and can no longer respond in a healthy way to it now the difficulty saying no comes out of the parental need for the child to be always compliant or to the child or for the child to take care of the parent so then we develop these personalities that we never disappoint anybody we're always dutiful we're always um, responsible and we never say no and my contention is that when we don't know how to say no the body will say it, that's the title of the book, when the body says no. And no matter matter whether you look at people with cancer or multiple sclerosis, ALS, colitis, Crohn's disease, chronic fatigue, depression, anxiety, um, uh, fibromyalgia, chronic psoriasis, eczema, the patterns are typically people who take on too much who have difficulty saying no in important areas of their lives. And then the body ends up saying no for them.
0: The body is so intelligent, and even more clearly so in reading your book.
1: The body's got an extreme intelligence about it, and that's just the whole tragedy of modern medicine, because when people come to a doctor, who, like me, you know, is, is a medical doctor trained in Western medical ways, we're trained to take people's symptoms away from them, or to suppress their diseases. Now, that's not a bad thing in itself. But well, we never learn to impre- interpret the diseases. In other words, we never ask the person to consider what is the disease saying to you? What is the actual message here? So while it's legitimate to want to cure a disease or to uh, alleviate a, a troublesome symptom, what is not legitimate is to ignore the message at the same time. Because it's the body's way of telling us something that we haven't paying attention to. And so modern medicine is a very good well, not so good, actually. In some cases, it's very good at curing things. Most chronic illnesses, it's got no idea what to do about, precisely because it ignores the mind-body unity and the uh, the uh, stress-disease connection. And uh, people come to us for symptom relief. Okay, we give them an anti-inflammatory or a painkiller or whatever we give, but we don't deal with the stress in that person's life that created the symptom in the first place.
0: Have you ever recommended to your patients to get hypnosis of any kind to deal with their subconscious?
1: You know, the answer is yes. Uh, what I have done is um, is I invite people to explore these issues that I've been talking about. Now I explore the emotional issues in their life to... Um, to look at their stresses and to learn ways of coping differently and that may include hypnotherapy that may include emotional freedom technique that may include EMDR that may include somatic experiencing that may include counseling just anything that that, that individual needs or could use to get in touch with themselves and to get past sort of the defenses of the programmed mind so hypnotherapy would be very helpful there no it's not it's the hypnotherapy you may have more expenses than i do uh, i don't find any modality works for everybody right you know and so there has to be a range of possible um uh, options modalities options for people to consider
0: there were many studies that you cited for example of people that get cancer you had talked about being repressed and not able to say no to people and a lot of anger that wasn't able to be communicated the other thing that you said was that it's not that the emotions cause the disease, but when they're not expressed, the body is therefore more vulnerable to.
1: You know, there was a study two years ago, uh, three, maybe four years ago on a story came, you know, several years after my book was published. It was, uh, the study was presented at the Heart and Stroke, Heart and Stroke Foundation's International Congress on Women's Health. The study follows 1,700 women in Massachusetts, I think, for a 10 year period. Over a 10 year period, those women who were unhappily married and didn't express their emotions were four times as likely to die as those women who were also unhappily married and did express their emotions. So the issue wasn't whether you had the negative emotions, the so called negative emotions. The issue was whether you expressed them or not.
0: That's really profound. Really, really profound.
1: That, of course, totally goes along with what I would have predicted
0: from the information I present in
1: the book. And it just joins the long list of research uh, materials that have been published in bona fide uh, mainstream journals, which are completely ignored by the medical profession. I don't mean every individual practitioner. I mean institutionally.
0: Can you explain psychoneuroimmunology to people? Because this is something you went back to many times in the book to make clear. It's apparently a new science, but what is it?
1: Well, it's it simply, as the name implies, psycho, referring to the psyche, the emotional apparatus in the brain and our, our emotional life, and neuro, nervous system, immuno, immune system. So the psychoneuroimmunology studies the interconnections. In fact, the unity of our emotional centers with the immune system and the nervous system and the hormonal apparatus. Which is to say, you can't separate these. In fact, they're one system and to to think about the nervous system as separate from emotions is scientifically completely erroneous. And uh, it's useful to study them separately for learning purposes, but to imagine that in real life they function in isolation from the other, which which is the basic assumption in medical practice, is completely unfounded. And psycho is simply the science that studies the interconnectedness and unity of all these so-called
0: separate systems. Don't you think that it's going to be quite a challenge for the average trained medical doctor to open up to this realm of emotionality and the influence that emotions have on the body and the body has on emotions? Simply because it's not part of the training, it's not part of the consciousness of becoming a doctor and being a doctor. Well,
1: it's it's even worse than that. I mean, that's true, and so and and physicians who are trained. Physicians are very conservative people. I mean, what I mean by that is they want to conserve what they know, and they're afraid of what they don't know, and um, at least forms of knowledge that that they're not familiar with simply are foreign to them, and they're not trained in some basic issues. They're not trained in normal human brain development, they're not trained in normal human psychology, they're not trained in the importance of attachments, they're not trained in family systems theory, they're not trained in psychonorminology. I mean, there's a whole set of things that medical training completely excludes for the most part, but that's only a part of it. The other part of it is that the research naturally is driven by the people with the money, and the people with the money are the pharmaceutical companies. Now, if somebody has multiple sclerosis, there's a lot of money to be made to come up with a new drug that will control the symptoms a little bit better. There's no money to be made in helping people dealing with their stresses. So what kind of articles will appear in the research literature? Who will fund these articles? Who will fund the actual research? Naturally, only those that are based on a very narrow biological view and uh, which promise some profit.
0: That's why the whole realm of peer review is questionable because you have the people that are controlling well, the peer thinking. Well, peer review means that
1: everybody drinks this bathwater, yeah, each bath water yeah. And, <laughs> and 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 better than not being peer reviewed, right? But it's a very narrow, narrow, narrow field. It's extremely narrow, number one, and and then but furthermore, it's a broader issue than that because we live in a society um, that separates mind from the body, that separates people from their environment. I mean, if we took. If we took our connection with our environment seriously for a minute, we couldn't be doing what we're doing with our economy and with our resources and with our lives. We couldn't be. But, of course, this is what society is based on. And if we actually understood that people are shaped by their environment, how could we possibly permit to happen to children what's happening to children? The separation from the adults, the stresses, the anxieties, the poverty, you know, the the, the environmental degradation, any number of things.
0: Including so, cell phone use, which drives me crazy watching it. Just unbelievable cell oh, phone yeah, use. Yeah
1: all, all those things, okay? Now in other words you live in a society that itself is based on a very narrow dimensional, one dimensional view of human beings. And the medical profession, like all professions, is conditioned by the expectations and the ideological uh, foundations of that society. So for doctors to break with that model would be, uh, in every sense of the word, revolutionary. Because if doctors really understood what illness is about, they'd have to challenge the social system. Because because it's, it's clear that, for example, socioeconomic factors and, and the stresses that they place on parents are the major drivers of illness in childhood. They even shaped the brain. Now, if we took that seriously, we couldn't, you know, as physicians, ignore what's happening in society on a political economic level. So in other words, to ask physicians to understand all this stuff is to really to challenge them to challenge the society that makes them very privileged members. So it's a complex problem.
0: Don't you also think if they really were in possession of the mind-body connection, they would never, ever dare tell a patient how long they have to live? They would never do it.
1: Well, look, I have a friend of mine who uh, was four years ago. No, sorry, four years ago. She's 47 now. And 10 years ago, she was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer, which means that the tumor was already in her bones by the time she was diagnosed. She was given one year to live. That was 10 years old. She's alive and doing well. Now, what she did do, is she uh, received the medical treatment, gratefully, as well as she should have, but she also looked at her life, and she realized her life had been a lie, that she'd been sexually abused as a child, but she never confronted her family, she never confronted her husband about his addiction, so in other words, she said she didn't say no to anything. She didn't express herself, and she began to express herself, and to be authentic herself, and that's why she
0: that's remarkable.
1: You know, no, but you know, famous example: Stephen Hawking, the physicist, who was, you know, wrote the Brief History of Time, and um, he was diagnosed with ALS. I think 56, 57 years ago. Now uh, he was given one year to live. That was fifty-six years ago. So it, clearly, that that narrowly biological view. often right but, but they're only right because we don't know what else to do with people. What if all cancer patients We don't know a whole lot. But we don't know that we don't know a whole lot. The, 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 the problem with the medical profession is not that it doesn't know everything, but that it thinks that what it doesn't know is not worth knowing.
0: That's profound, too. That's true. And so
1: we ignore everything else. So all the wisdom of the ages, the other medical practice, uh, practices around the world, uh, the, the, the influence of the mind, you know, all these things we... Uh, we uh, don't pay attention to because we we just don't think there's anything there for us.
0: Can we talk a little bit about Stephen Hawking's? Because you mentioned him in the book and you shared a bit about his life and his imprinting in his early childhood with his parents. Do you feel comfortable?
1: Everybody with ALS, when you look at anybody with ALS, it doesn't matter who it is, amyotrophic amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or in North America Lou Gehrig's disease. The template uh, for that is Lou Gehrig himself, who was the son of an alcoholic, father. Who learned very early to suppress his needs in order to support his mother emotionally and, and his father. And therefore who never said no and therefore set a record for consecutive games played as a, you know, as a New York Yankee because he never missed a game even if when his hands were fractured as they were 17 times. But he continued to play. Then he developed ALS. And the typical ALS personality, somebody with severe emotional loss in childhood, in, inability to say no, taken on way too much, and refuses to ask for help. And uh, now in Stephen Hawking's case, he comes from an emotionally very arid family. The father was emotionally and physically very often absent. The family would have very little emotional contact. They'd sit around the dinner table, each of them buried in their own newspapers, very much in the intellectual mind, but, but not much, no emotional expression. And typically, when he's diagnosed, he's falling and hurting himself, and he's not telling anybody. But people with ALS don't ask for help. I think what enabled him to survive was a that being a brilliant intellect, he could really live a life of the mind. He didn't he didn't have to give up his self-image in order to <clears throat> deal with the disease. Like if he had been a marathon runner, he, I don't think he'd be alive today. But he could actually express himself very strongly through his mind. That's the first thing. The second thing is he developed he's not such a nice guy. If you if he if you bother me, he'll run over your foot with his uh, wheelchair, so I'm told. So he developed this capacity to express anger. And and thirdly, he said women in his life who actually took over his stresses. His first wife became an almost suicidal shell of herself because she completely emptied herself looking after him, at which point he leaves her and marries his nurse. And I think all that helped him survive.
0: Now you're talking about Lou Gehrig or are you talking about... No, I'm talking about Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking now, yeah, that's well, Luke what Gehrig that's Gehrig I thought. Lou didn't survive. Lou right. Gehrig uh,
1: remained a nice guy to the end uh, until he could no longer drive himself around or, or, or drag himself around the baseball diamond. And he died shortly after.
0: You have gotten an outstanding alumnus award from Simon Fraser University, and are you still an adjunct professor in SFU's School of Criminology?
1: Well, I was appointed that just this year. I'm okay. not sure what that actually means. First of all, it means I don't get paid. That's what it means. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, yeah, they'll want me to do some lecturing up there. I mean, I'm not a criminologist, but I think they believe that my work on addiction, which is another book of mine, is, is an important contribution to understanding criminal behavior, which I can't I can't disagree with them either. So they appointed me adjunct professor.
0: And how has Canada received you?
1: Well, my books, are all four of them are bestsellers up here. Um, so in Canada, I've sold, you know, in the four of them, I've sold about 400 or 200,000 books, you know, which in the U.S. context would translate to about 3 million books. Um, but there'd be national bestsellers up here, um, I, I no longer work as a, as a physician. Um, I dropped my license just this year. I'm just too busy fielding invitations to speak and to teach, which is what I do now, both in the U.S. and Canada. So the response has been more than gratifying, and pretty much whenever anybody reads my work or anybody reads my work, where they hear about it in an interview, there's a tremendous excitement about it. Um, in Canada, I've had more coverage in the mainstream media than I have in uh, than I've had in the states. But in the States, where people do hear about me or the work that I do or the ideas that I present, it's not about me personally, Uh, it's a terrific amount of interest and enthusiasm. Because I actually think that I'm speaking to people's experience. I mean, am I saying anything to you that on the gut level doesn't seem right to you? Not at all. Yeah, well that's just the whole thing. So people do experience this. What I do, and thanks to my medical training and capacity to articulate uh, ideas. I, I provide some an intellectual framework and analysis for people's experience, but they, people know the stuff in their guts. And very often, the problem with doctors and, and, and the patients is the patients' guts are telling them one thing, and the doctors telling them another. And in our society, we tend not to pay attention to our gut feelings.
0: And the gut actually has a brain, doesn't it?
1: Well, the gut is a, the gut has been called the second brain. Because the gut is a, a huge nervous system. It's got many, many nerve centers. And it sends many, many uh, nerve fibers to the brain with all kinds of information. Many more nerve fibers go from the gut to the brain than come down the other way. In other words, the gut is speaking to the brain. And the, and the brain is speaking to the gut. The two can't be separated, as a matter of fact. So gut feelings are crucial sensory information for us. When our gut feelings are acting up, they're telling us, to really be careful about something and to pay attention to something. And most people have had the experience that to ignore a gut feeling is to bring some kind of a problem upon your head. The gut is a very intelligent uh, sensory organ.
0: Wouldn't it be great if people learned how to tune in to their gut brain?
1: There's a large number of people who do. Do you know what we call those people? Shamans? There's a much larger group than that. Infants.
0: (laughs) That's great.
1: We're all born with that capacity. In fact, that's what we were born with. Have you ever met a one-day-old that doesn't express his gut feelings? No. You know, in other words, it's nothing that we have to learn. What we have to learn is what's in the way of it. Because it's there, right? That's part of our nature. That's who we are. So it's the loss of contact with the gut feelings that's, out, that's unnatural. And, and what we have to figure out is not how to pay attention, but what's in the way of us paying attention.
0: Do you think that it's socially stamped out of us through mechanized activity, through habit, through being busy, through not being present to the now?
1: Well, all that is true. But the template for all that is our early experience in our families of origin. When our parents know how to recognize and validate our gut feelings, then we learn to recognize and validate them too. And then we don't lose touch with them. When our parents are too stressed, distracted, depressed, otherwise occupied, or reactive, then we suppress our awareness of gut feelings because we don't want conflict with our environment. So um, it is socially induced, but the, the things you mentioned, though totally valid and they keep us that way, they're secondary to the original loss, which happens in the family
0: of origin. I know that you wrote also extensively about early childhood adversity and impacts how you live and is imprinted in your brain and in your behavior. Can you explain it?
1: Sure. The Buddha said that with our minds, we create the world. With our thoughts, we create the world. In other words, how we see the world is the world we're going to live in. So if you see the world as a hostile place where nobody can be trusted, you're going to have a very different experience from the world then if you think that the world actually is basically people are good, people are well-meaning, you have to be careful, because not everybody is, but fundamentally uh, you can find help in this world if you know how to look for it. Uh, now, you can live in a very different world if you have one belief or the other, right? Yes. Each of those beliefs are, template, are, 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 are inculcated in us through our early experiences. So if a child is not picked up when they cry, if the parent is too stressed or depressed to pay attention to the child's emotional dynamics and emotional messages, Uh, if the parent is abusive, then the child will learn that the world is an unsafe place, where he or she she is all alone, and nobody can be trusted, and they have to do everything for themselves, and if they don't control everything, everything will fall apart.
0: As a meta-message, right?
1: That's the message, and Mm -hmm. that's what they're going to then project into the world, as opposed to a child who's listened to and honored and held and you know, so on, That was a very different world. So these fundamental experiences become translated into unconscious beliefs that we have about the world. And it was unconscious beliefs then that regulate our behavior. So the person who, who believes that they're not worthy will find relationships in which their unworthiness is constantly proven to them. And people that would, would treat them differently, they wouldn't even be attracted to
0: yeah, that is almost like a biology, isn't it, at that point?
1: It's biologically imprinted in the brain. No, it doesn't mean it can't be superseded or or, or, or or healed, but only through some kind of conscious awareness. It, you know Automatically, it'll have a hard time healing itself.
0: Do you meditate, doctor?
1: You know, I'm glad you asked me today and not three weeks ago, because right now the answer is yes.
0: <laughs> what happened two weeks ago? No meditation?
1: <clears throat> well... When I don't pursue mindfulness in my life, I f- easily fall into my workaholic and externally hungry uh, behavior patterns, which don't lead to good consequences.
0: Understood.
1: <laughs> well, life is a way of slapping me upside, you know, on the head and <laughs> to get back to where you need to get back to. Get back to where you once belonged, belong, as the Beatles song says, you know? So. For me, that has to involve, for me, I'm not, I'm not describing anything, but for me, that has to involve some mindfulness work on a regular basis.
0: Have you ever met Thich Nhat Hanh?
1: Uh, only through his books. I've read, I've got about a dozen of them on my shelves. i see every time I go through a spiritual crisis, I buy another book. So <laughs> I've got a whole lot of his books. And I've even read some of them.
0: He's quite remarkable to be around. Absolutely, like being in the presence of Buddha. Yeah. With no ideology projected onto you, it is a delight. Oh my God! All right, well,
1: you know what? That sounds wonderful. He's
0: in the south of France most of the time. You
1: know, he's got he's got a village
0: there, doesn't and, he? And yes, and Plum Village or
1: something he calls it. Plum
0: Village in San Diego area, just before San Diego. He has Deer Park Monastery. But if you ever want to get away for about seven to ten days and absolutely bathe in mindfulness, it is unbelievable. I spent three, four days with him and... In France? Or actually here in Deer Park. He'll be here over the summer, but he's also in France now.
1: Would you be kind enough to send me an email?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: I'm on the West Coast, so San Diego is very easily accessible for
0: me. Sure. He usually comes in August. Okay. But sometimes time is of the essence. He is up there in age, and you never know, and he's quite right. frail.
1: Must be, Yeah, no, I'd, I'd just be delighted to... Even consider that yeah. idea. I mean, yeah. I, I am taking holidays all summer, so, but you know, maybe I'll do that.
0: I think it would be awesome because there are some things that are indescribable. <laughs> I'm sure. There's some things, and he is, I would say, one of the great masters of mindfulness and receptivity like I've never seen. But when you use that word, it reminded me of Ty.
1: Well, no question. And, you know, I've, I find his teachings really important in my own
0: development. You gave an example about people studying students that found themselves very lonely and how their immunity was highly diminished.
1: Well, again, this is a, just a, another marker of the mind-body unity. Yes. Two studies are worth mentioning here. One is uh, medical students who, under the stress of examinations, are found to have uh, suppressed immune activity. But uh, it's those students in the class who are most emotionally isolated who find the most uh, suppression of the immune responses. So emotional isolation magnifies stress. That's one study of students. The other study of students that's interesting is in West Point at the Military Academy, where the American military learn how to bomb the rest of the world. Um, they, um, the 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 students, the cadets entering West Point, were studied for um, their response to the Epstein-Barr virus, the EB virus, which is the causative agent of uh, infectious mononucleosis, and so. The people that were most likely to be infected with the virus and to develop the illness were those students whose fathers had been high high achievers but their the students who were failing all those high high uh, standards that the fathers had set.
0: How interesting.
1: The fear of judgment and the sense of failure surpassed the immune system as well.
0: See this is mind-boggling in a way. Mind-boggling in the sense that science wouldn't ordinarily be looking at this.
1: Well that, but that's just what So amazing, and and the the first chapter of my book, uh, When the Body Says No, is entitled The Bermuda Triangle, precisely because so many of these studies have been done and published and validated, and they disappear without a trace as far as medical practice is concerned. So that's what's really mind-boggling. To me, it's not mind-boggling if the studies have been done because they make sense to me. What is mind-boggling is that they've been done and so chronically ignored,
0: you know, almost as if disappearing into the vacuum.
1: Hence the title of the first chapter, the Bermuda Triangle, where, you know, ships disappear without their trace.
0: Yes, indeed. <laughs> Can we talk a little about Gilda Radner, the great, beloved Gilda Radner?
1: Sure. Well, you know, in writing this book, aside from looking at the medical research and uh, case examples and, and all that, I also looked up the biographies of famous people, I knew had suffered or died from certain diseases like Lou Gehrig like Lance Armstrong and his testicular cancer and like Gilda Radner with her ovarian cancer. Now I knew nothing about the biographies of any of these people before before, uh, reading them I just knew that they had this disease whichever disease they had but what was remarkable is that in every case including saliently in Gilda's case the life patterns and emotional patterns that I had been talking about were present to the 10th degree. Uh, Gilda died of ovarian cancer, as you know, and uh, she had been a very unhappy child. Uh, she was an overweight child. The reason she was thin and as an adult is because she was bulimic. And her mother never do that, so Gilda spent her whole life protecting her mom from the knowledge that she was a bulimic. She, her father died when she was 12, and that's a loss she never um, overcame, really. Uh, one consequence was that she kept putting herself into relationships with men where she would suppress herself in order to please the guy, which is not uncommon for women, of course, and it's a major source of stress. And uh, then she was a bulimic, a closet bulimic, so all the time she was a star, she'd be binging and, and, and throwing up. And uh, uh, when she developed ovarian cancer, uh, she was still trying to please everybody. Uh, she developed intestinal obstruction. Uh, her balls didn't work it has a complication of ovarian cancer and she actually wrote about it in her biography that my dilemma was how to please everybody because I asked everybody's advice but not if I follow this person's advice so and so might be hurt so it's her body's actually shutting down and she's still worried about whose advice to follow not as to what might be best for her but how do I please all these different people
0: we would never know sometimes what people go through
1: well she wrote about it you know and then and then when she looks like she, she survived her cancer, then she becomes like a poster girl for the disease, cover of Life magazine and all that, and a symbol of successful recovery. And then she, then, then she turns out that the cancer comes back. And then she says, I felt like a failure, like I let everybody down. Here she is with her cancer, and she still thinks she owes it to everybody else, not for herself, but for others, not to have disease. And at the very end of her life, Only at the very end of her life, she actually begins to get it. She actually writes, and uh, I will quickly find a page for you so I can read you her exact words. And she says, only close to her death did Gilda finally learn that she could not be mother to the world. And she writes, I couldn't do everything I wanted to do. I couldn't keep calling all the cancer patients I knew, and I couldn't try to help heal all the women with, with ovarian cancer, and I couldn't read every letter I received, because it was ripping me apart. I couldn't cry all those tears for everybody else. I had to take care of myself. It is important to realize that you have to take care of yourself because you can't take care of anybody else until you do. But even that last line, she still doesn't quite get it. You know, she's still justifying, looking after herself because that will allow me to take care of others. But at least she's realizing that she can't just continue to take care of others all the time. But of course, by the time she realized it, her body had said no in a massive way, and she didn't live much longer.
0: That was so sad.
1: And, but, but, you know, uh, her story, and, and, and right now there are these um, organizations that were founded, or at least in the memory of Gilda Radner, to deal with the cancer. They never talk about this stuff. The real lesson of Gilda's life is never applied, and her life is only emblematic of the life of anybody with cancer or chronic illness for that matter.
0: You talk a lot about boundaries and people's ability to set boundaries being one of the keys to keeping your immune system healthy.
1: Well, you have to know where you end and somebody else starts. You know, you you, you can't take on other people's stuff. If you do, you're going to suffer. And so that's all I mean by boundaries. In a lot of marriages, women, for example, the husband is angry. The woman right away makes it about herself. How can I mitigate his anger? How can I propitiate his displeasure? Well as soon as you start doing that, you've abandoned yourself and you've and you and you've taken on somebody else and you've blurred your boundaries.
0: People take on a lot of things that they yes, don't even it, know they're taking yes, on. And our
1: society rewards people for taking things on. I mean the people that we take everything on are considered to be saints, you know? And uh and yet very often they do that at their own expense. No, you know. <laughs> This society also rewards selfishness in a major way. I mean, the people that are the some of the emblematic icons of our society are people like Donald Trump, who, who basically is a personified ego. You know, all a, somebody said he's an ego with a hairpiece, and uh, he, he he exemplifies the me 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 selfish 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 selfish. You know, but um, but I'm not sure how much emotion there is for him. My guess is that it is an emotionally, very empty life. That's why he needs all that stuff. That's why he needs all the power. But, you know, if you look at the obituaries and people who die young, it's always people who are good. The good die young because they take on way too much.
0: Can we talk a little bit about your experience surviving the Nazi situation? Well, it,
1: it, it's an issue that is present in pretty much well in three of my books um, because it very much shaped my experience of life. So you and I talked earlier about how early experiences provide a template for how we see the world. So being born a Jewish infant two months before the Nazis occupied my home country of Hungary, the first experience I had of the world is a mother who is distracted and depressed and stressed and uh, can barely uh, ensure her own and her son's survival. This is in the face of the death of her parents and the absence in forced labor of her husband. And so the sense I get of the world is a, that is a world which is dangerous, which is not very helpful, which may may not, may, may not want me, and in which I have to really suppress my pain because my mother is already overburdened. And that's what then I take into my adult life. So then that helps me to become a workaholic because. That's only way to make yourself wanted is to be a really busy doctor, you know? So th- those are the experiences. And then, of course, as I always point out in my talks, then I have children. But if I'm a busy workaholic like doctor, what message do they get?
0: That you're not available.
1: Uh, what what message do they get about themselves?
0: That they're not worthy of you.
1: Exactly, that they're not worthy. So then, so then they grow up to be adults who have to deal with that particular belief. and this is how you pass it on and we don't pass it on deliberately but the template is set fairly early in life
0: Don't you think it's all transcendable though, if people can get in touch with where they are completely.
1: I mean, there'd be no point in any of my books if I didn't think that people have the capacity to heal, to overcome to to develop new brain circuits to get into a different relationship with themselves Uh, of course it's possible Uh, it's That's the beauty of human life. The purpose of pointing out what the issues are is not to create an impression of doom and uh, helpless um, dysfunction for the rest of our lives. It's actually to show people what's going on so they can create a different life for themselves.
0: Do you agree with the way that addiction is being dealt with in the United States? Are you familiar with what's going on here with Dr. Drew and this one? And oh, yeah.
1: It's, uh, I think it's a total disaster.
0: Because it makes me mad when I see it because people's lives are demonized on television and radio and endless hours talking about them, particularly celebrity groups are used.
1: Oh, yeah, this poor Charlie Sheen, he's a, he's a guy who's mentally ill, and, and he is uh, fodder for the media. And people analyze him and talk about him endlessly for entertainment. I mean, talk about not seeing the humanity of another person. He's a man deeply in pain. I think rather blind to himself. But if he wasn't a celebrity, wouldn't we treat him with some compassion instead of as a, as a, as a public joke? He's not a joke. He's a, a profoundly suffering human being. You know, my, my invitation would be, if you're interested, uh, that you do read my book on addiction, uh, The the... The main thing that people say about it, which I think is a telling statement in itself, is that it humanizes the addict. Of course, my point is, how can you humanize a human being? <laughs> They're human to start with. But the point is that we don't see their humanity. And that's what's implied in your question. So if you're going to help people, you have to see them as human beings. And they have to understand what their addiction represents, which is the pain in their life. I would invite you to consider reading that book. I would love to. Then you could have another conversation with
0: I would love to. I also want to read the book, Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. I'm going to read them both. (laughs) It's such a prevalent issue. Addiction itself feels like now at this time, given the media and the way the media feeds upon itself and feeds on other people and feeds on problems and conflict, it seems like addiction in general is fodder for the media. Just the subject of addiction.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a whole different way to talk about addiction, and I think you'll find that if you read that book.
0: I'm looking forward to it. Is there anything else you'd like to say today?
1: Not uh, really. I think it's been a fairly broad range of conversation. Um, I look forward to receiving information about Dignat harm.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And uh, perhaps to talk with you again after you've had opportunity to read some of my other work.
0: It would be a delight. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Gabor Mate, the author of Scattered Minds, When the Body Says No. Hold on to your kids in the realm of hungry ghosts. He can be reached by going to drgabormate.com. D-R-G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-E dot com. Thank you for being with us. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.